0: Hello and welcome to Living Heritage, a show about people who are engaged in the heritage and culture sector—all those who keep heritage alive at the community level. I'm Tara Barrett, and today's guest is Joe Shore. Dr. Joe Shore is a cultural geographer who taught in the D- Department of Geography at Mon for many years. Her special interest is the study of cultural landscapes. Joe has researched the tradition and structure of farming landscape, the impact of an expanding urban area on the adjacent rural f- farmscape and the arrival of the military landscape during the Second World War in St. John's, and currently the landscape of property in downtown St. John's. Hello, Joe, and welcome to the show.
1: Hello, thanks for having me.
0: Um, So just to start off, uh, just just wondering when you became interested or how you
1: became interested in geography. How I became interested in geography. I think everyone can make up a story about how something happened, and a lot of it is hindsight. (laughs) Whether it's true or not, I don't know. But when I was a child, our local church in the farming village in Ontario where I lived celebrated the church's centenary. And at that time, some of the ladies of the church did a little booklet, and it included a map. And it showed on that map all kinds of things I'd never heard of, and I knew the village. I walked through it every day to school. And there was a hame factory and a sawmill and a gristmill down by the river and a road down by the river that I didn't know. So I took myself down one day, did a detour from going home from school, and I found this road, which was now a little path, and there were no factories, no buildings at all. And I thought, how do people, how do the women who wrote this know about this? And I, I was, the word archives had never appeared in my life. And in fact, there weren't any local archives. Um, and I I'd, I had no idea how people knew, but I thought there must be a way that they found out. And I don't recall asking the adults how, but it stuck in my head and I was From that moment, totally aware that everywhere I went, someone had been before. And that's what I tried to impress upon my students. They had no concept that anyone had ever been, anything had been at MUN campus before MUN campus. But of course, other things had happened in the past.
0: And so how did you try to impress that, I guess, that background knowledge or that, that history onto your students?
1: Well, I marched them out the door and we walked around the campus and I took them to the Arts and Culture Centre and I said, stand at the entrance to the Arts and Culture Centre and look toward Burton's Pond and you see a beautiful avenue of trees. How odd. And they just end at Burton's Pond. And they're not even quite properly aligned with the front door of the Arts and Culture Centre. And that's because the Arts and Culture Centre is built on the site of a farmhouse and the farmhouse people planted the trees to make an avenue down to Burton's Pond. But more than that, the farmhouse became the Church of England Orphanage. So until the Arts and Culture Centre was built, it was an orphanage. So there you have Arts and Culture Centre going back to the orphanage, going back to the farmhouse, going back to when the farm was not a working farm but was a a gentleman's estate in the country for a merchant. So, And other things on campus beside. But that's a good example.
0: I I would be like one of your students. (laughs) I would have no idea about that background history. Mm -hmm. Um, So I guess... um, just a, an, another question for anybody who doesn't know: What is uh, a cultural geographer?
1: Well, a geographer, a geographer. You can how can I look at this? You can look at landscape in many ways. You can be an economist and look at look at all the industry and uh, economic activity there. You can be an artist and look at it visually from other points of view. You can be a historian and dig in the archives. You can be a geographer, and a geographer likes to look at the world around them and actually see it and walk about in it. So fieldwork's very important. And as a geographer, you can be, uh, I call it, rocks and people. You can be a physical geographer and look f- at the physical landscape. Why is a hill a hill? Why is a valley a valley? Or you could be a cultural geographer and say, what is built on the landscape and who built it and why and for what purpose and more than that geographers deal with space and spatial relationships so we're always looking at where are things how are they dispersed uh, where are there more where are there less where there are many where there are few how do they relate to each other so you have a commuting belt around a big city because people come to work every day. So you're looking at all these spatial relationships. That's really what defines a geographer.
0: Uh, we had a question here, actually, um, about what sort of things contribute to like a sense of place. So what do you think is something that would contribute to a sense of place? And I guess, how would you define a sense of place?
1: Well, a sense of place is a certain concept um, which... Really involves um, a personal identity with a spot now Newfoundland has an incredible sense of place <laughs> in many places i 've lived i 've never felt a sense of place as strong as in Newfoundland. I mean place matters to people here right down at the very very local level and that 's admirable and wonderful and adds a superb dimension to their lives and thoughts and and I think it contributes so much to the the cultural activity here that the Stories and the singing and the dancing and the music and all of that, uh, so a sense of place um, is quite personal. it can also be a community sense of place and it 's a combination of i think what you look at every day. you know there are lots of lots of arguments that blow up at city hall when a building is to be taken down or demolished, or when a building is to be put up in a vacant space. And I did some work on this once when there was, um, there was a supermarket. Um, let's see, this, the super, it was Shamrock Field, and it was to be taken to be a supermarket. And everybody complained. But what they really were missing was the view. They said they liked to look out the window and see the view across Shamrock Field. And that's the identity that was to them. And I found that the view, what they're used to seeing every day is an, a very important element in this. Mm-hmm.
0: And where was uh, Shamrock?
1: Field? Oh, Shamrock Field. Shamrock Field is where the supermarket is nowadays at the corner of Mary Meat and Newtown Road. <laughs> the supermarket one. <laughs> and now people are very used to looking at it and they use it every day.
0: <laughs> um so in terms of okay, well what um sorry. Have you seen the field of cultural geography change over the years? And is it different now than when you first started out in the field?
1: Well, yes, it's all gone digital like everything else. Um, and this gives you different different tools. Um, but I, I think it still keeps to its code of fieldwork. Uh, people want to go out and see and look in the field and get a, and get a sense of... Of walking around, if if you were studying, I had a student who studied big box stores. Well she was she was out out and about Mount Pearl and Stavanger Drive and looking at the arrangement of them, looking at the the crazy road pattern within them that traps the consumers, so they stay longer and go past more stores. Um, she was looking at all of this. She was looking at the dim- bulky dimensions of the buildings, where they're much bigger buildings, and we see in any other retail uh, sector. Um, so, yes, she could have got architects' drawings and done this. She could have gone to the planning department, as she did, and get maps. But to to go out there and stand there and watch what the traffic was doing and talk to a few people and this, that, and the other, as well as talking to management... That makes a composite picture. You have to, as a geographer, you gather your information from many different sources, and fieldwork's an important one. And I think that's always been, and it still is. So that's something that that has stayed. But the techniques and technology, of course, you have to keep adapting to those. So you mentioned uh, a geographer's toolkit. So what is what is, I guess, some sort of
0: like technology or piece that is in in a geographer's toolkit?
1: Well, for a cultural geographer, uh, for myself, my toolkit is wandering around the landscape and looking at things, and my toolkit involves interviews with people involved in my landscape, and my toolkit involves archives, so that I have the background to understanding the landscape, and my toolkit involves the administration of the landscape, so I'm I, I know all the planners, all the urban planners, for example. I've uh, met with them and worked with them and asked questions of them. Um, so I think I think that's the array of material that I use. Mm-hmm. And what would you
0: say is an example of um, one cultural landscape?
1: Uh, well, I, I, I could give you a local one, a provincial one, you know, <laughs> a prairie one, an English one. <laughs> German one. I mean, there's all kinds of them. Uh, what will I choose? I think for the students at Mann, we've already talked about the the orphanage at the Arts and Culture Center. If we go, uh, well, we might we might talk about the Arts Administration Building, which was which is located in the pasture of the Halliday family farm. And if you go across Elizabeth Avenue from the Arts and Culture Building, you see a new housing development, and it's called Halliday Place. Of course, that Halliday Place is where the farmhouse was, and of course the family was called Halliday. So you have there in the, in the street sign a connection with an event in the past. And the Halliday Farm stretched from um, Long Pond all the way across what's now university campus right down to the Lions Club Park at Newtown Road. And in fact, the Halliday Farm's lane to the farm and main entrance face south to Newtown Road. And you can actually see uh, the remnants of an avenue of large trees, and they trickle across Whiteaway Street and Wallace Place to Newtown Road. And they mark the lane that was the entrance to the farm. Um, so there's an example. Uh, and But then Churchill Park was developed in the, nightly, in the mid-1940s, and it was a huge housing Proposal: a huge housing project. And in 1944, the government of Newfoundland expropriated 800 acres to create an area which later became known as Churchill Park, and they wanted it to build 1,000 homes. So everyone within that area was expropriated. And that began the demise of the Halliday Farm, because although they there, no, none of the houses were demolished of all the people who lived in the area, and the farmers were allowed to keep their houses, but all their land was taken. So the Hallidays were left with this little patch, which is now Halliday Place, and all their land was taken. So they lost their farm business and their livelihood.
0: And... Oh no. no, I was
1: going to say, every, uh, everyone was compensated for their land per acre, but the farmers lost their livelihood, and they were not compensated for that. And that's a very bitter part of the story. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: And so why is something like Churchill Park important
1: or interesting to a cultural geographer? Well, Churchill Park, first of all, think uh, Churchill Park is more than Churchill Square. Think of Elizabeth Avenue, which runs from Freshwater to Torbay Road. And now erase Elizabeth Avenue from your mind. So Churchill Park actually extends from Freshwater to Torbay. And the first thing that was built was Elizabeth Avenue as a spine through the park. Because before then, you could not get from Torbay Road to Freshwater without going into town and out again. Because all the land between Torbay and Freshwater was farmland. Right, So that was the starting point. So Churchill Park was an idea. There was a terrible housing shortage in St. John's. The First World War and economic depression in the 20s and the 30s and the Second World War there had meant very few houses were built. So there was a terrible problem. <clears throat> and Brian Dunfield, a local judge actually with a compassionate heart, really decided something should be done about it and the city council had tried and they couldn't get the government to move on it and and so on but anyway it worked out that brian dunfield became in charge of the saint john's housing corporation and it developed churchill park and and the corporation came into being in 1944 which meant this was the first suburban development in Newfoundland, and it was the first suburban development in canada Although Newfoundland wasn't in Canada in 1944, so it has some significance that way. And the fact that that it it increased Churchill Park, the 800 acres, increased the area of the city by a third. The boundary of the city had been Empire Avenue before that, so it was huge. I mean, it was just huge, huge in every way, proportionately to the city. Uh, so then the whole story of how this development was handled is a whole intriguing story which well, I could go on and on but maybe you have another question.
0: <laughs> <laughs> um, so just talking about uh, Churchill Park and how it occurred in 1944, you yes, mentioned, mm-hmm. um, was there other ways that uh, World War II changed the geography of St. John's and the, the landscape?
1: Oh, yes, yes. Uh, the war was declared in September 39, and uh, late in 1940 and 41, f- to this town of 40,000 people, 15,000 military personnel arrived from the states and Canada and Britain. So it's 15,000 more bodies in in a 40,000 population town. So it was huge, and they all came and set up shop in their own ways. So. The, the Canadians were building Torbay Airport, and also a, the, their navy got all involved with shepherding convoys across the Atlantic. The British government came and did a lot of work around the harbour in their naval. It was really their naval section that was involved. The Americans came and built Pleasantville. The Canadian army came, and the Canadian army camped... Uh, near Blackmarsh Road south of Mundy Pond in what was called Lester's Field. Uh, so you take Lester's Field, you take the Canadian Navy, which is where um, Buckmaster Circle is today, just north of St. Clair's Hospital. You take the Americans at Pleasantville, three huge camps. And with that, you had Dozens and dozens of smaller buildings uh, throughout the town. So you, ha- you had an anti-aircraft battery where McPherson School is, uh, which is just off Newtown Road, all right? And the nuns who ran Belvaneer Orphanage on Bonaventure complained bitterly to the American or to the Canadian general uh, about this anti-aircraft site, but they did it anyway, all right? You had another air- anti-aircraft site on the Hill of Chips. All right, which is what is the name of the hotel on the hill of chips? Uh, something. Quality there's inn, maybe. There's something. Rumpelstiltskin. Rumpelstiltskin is quality inn. Yes. So you have to imagine an anti aircraft site there. You have to imagine Signal Hill band because there are a thousand troops on the top of Signal Hill. You can't go up the south side hills to pick berries because there's all kinds of uh, gun emplacements up there. Um the Americans also built here, just in Churchill Park, uh, there are three, there's the streets, Elm Place, Beach Place, Sycamore, there's another one, off Pinebud Avenue. Where those streets are today was Camp Alexander, which was an American camp. I mean, they, they were everywhere in town and barbed wire fences everywhere. So when you had the Canadian camp in Leicester's Field south of Mundy Pond, all of that was barbed wire and fenced off. So the whole town, you couldn't walk around in town without seeing something. All the recreational clubs, the Americans had a recreational club just near where the rooms is. The Canadians had one down on Water Street. and, And so everywhere you went, things were happening. Uh, So there was a whole military landscape sort of shoehorned into the town, not just on vacant land, but taking over other buildings, and this all lasted. And at the end of the war in 1945, poof, it vanished, except for Pleasantville. Everybody packed up and went home, and the British Admiralty gave a lot of buildings to the town, they had several hosp- hospitals, which they gave to the town. One became the TB sanatorium on uh, uh, Topsail, Topsail Road, Road, right? And there was a fever hospital, which became part of the general hospital. Um, so they gave a lot of buildings away. The Canadians had built temporary buildings in Leicester's Field. They demolished them all that summer. But the Americans stayed until 1961 because they were concerned about continuing defense of the North Atlantic during the Cold War.
0: So So that seems to have had a a major major. change in the city. And you mentioned that, you know, the Canadians and the British troops left, the Army and the Navy left. Um, But what kind of effect do you think those, even the buildings that were taken down, um, you mentioned that people weren't allowed to, or people couldn't go berry picking, and all these things. Mm-hmm. So, what kind of an effect do you think that had on, I guess, the the society in St. John's at the time?
1: Well, they all had to adapt. I mean, they they had they had blackout, and there was a limited amount of <clears throat> rationing. Um, and so everybody adapted, but everyone was involved. I mean, they had a lot of fun because all the troops had these recreational centres for the troops and, you know, every young girl in town, I'm sure, went and volunteered because it was cinema. They saw films. The Americans brought in films. They saw films and they were dances every night and there were hostels for all the sailors. They sometimes had hundreds of sailors off the ships who came in for two or three days. And they were all uh, given board and lodging in town. And, oh, I mean, everybody. How could you not participate in the war? Now, sure, there were shortcomings, but it was a very exciting time. And, and when you talk to people about it, it's the excitement and fun they talk about. They don't, they don't talk about the blackout and all that, no, no.
0: Um, so just to change gears a little bit, um, how do you conserve a cultural landscape? And does it remain static, or does it change over time?
1: No, it's very dynamic. It's always changing. And, uh, and this this is the thing. How do you save it? And <clears throat> what authority does anyone have to save it when it's dynamic is part of the economic and social fabric of the community, actually? I mean, the community likes new, new architectural fashions. It likes new activities, which... Sometimes need new kinds of buildings to house them in, um, but it also has nostalgia and also has memory of things in the past and that's that 's really the trick of how of how you do maintain some heritage in the landscape. Um, a lot of individual buildings are plaqued by different levels of government and heritage organizations, uh, and it 's in terms of a heritage landscape, you you really need a collection of buildings located spatially in a cluster or a group or close together that have some sort of relationship with each other economically or socially or culturally. And if you have a, a definable collection like that in the landscape, then you could call it a heritage landscape. And one example is Port Union, and it, Port Union was built by the Fishermen's Union. So this is, this is a unique one-off after 1916. And so you have many buildings. I mean, most of the town of Port Union and many of these buildings remain were connected with those efforts in the 1920s. And so that has been defined and, and regarded now as a heritage landscape. Um, You have smaller, what I call, heritage clusters. These are all over Newfoundland, and these are institutional, where you have mostly uh, churches who built a church and then built a school and built a priest's house or a rectory uh, or the Parsons' home. So you have a collection of church, school, and residents, usually very close together spatially, usually (coughs) very close together architecturally, and this is a tiny little landscape, and another small little cluster that is defined as a landscape is even a farm. If you have a farm with its original house and outbuildings in their in their original site <coughs> and the, the original building maintained, <coughs> that is again another cluster that you can uh, <coughs> you can define as a heritage landscape. Mm-hmm.
0: And why do you think heritage landscapes are significant? And do you think that people in, I guess, in St. John's or in the province understand the significance of a cultural <coughs> landscape?
1: Well, I used to tell my students that museums collect objects and bring them inside. And cultural geography and heritage collects objects that are too big to bring into the museum. So it's outside collection. And that's important, uh, Uh, It's important that people don't think everything nostalgic and heritage is is inside the museums, although that's good, and we need that too, and it's very important. But it would be nice to have that collection outside that you walk around in. Uh, If you go to Cornerbrook, for example, when the paper mill was established in 1925, the company had to build a town to go with the mill. And so the townscape of Central Cornerbrook, has the owner's house, whenever he visited from England, which is now the Glenmill Inn, and the manager's house and the sub-manager's houses and some of the workers. And all these houses are graded by the footprint, the size, the quality, etc., and then the really low-order workers at the mill <coughs> did not have houses built by the management. They just found their own houses and often built them themselves in a chaotic pattern without sewage provision or anything else. Uh, so that they were much in contrast to what the management had built. So you can walk around today in Cornerbrook and you can see the Mill Inn, you can see Cobb Lane where the high management lived, you can see other streets where lesser management lived, and and get a sense. And there's also streets where some of those workers, for whom the mill did not build houses, actually built their own houses uh, uh, themselves. So the whole story's there. So you can get a sense
0: of the of the place just yes, walking through.
1: And it is a heritage landscape, but it's not been designated yet, <coughs> unfortunately.
0: So if somebody was interested in geography, um, <coughs> what piece of advice would you give to them? <coughs>
1: Well, I would say whatever you're interested in, go and follow it because that's what you like to do. <clears throat> so, if you happen to take geography, there is a geography department at MUN and it's a very it's a large and very vigorous department. <clears throat> and it offers up both physical geography and cultural geography. And, uh, and I just go for it. Go for it.
0: Um, I think this will probably be the last question there. Um, but what do you think the role of cultural geographers will be in the future?
1: <clears throat> in the future, well, geographers, cultural geographers now turn up everywhere. For example, I went to a planners' do recently and looked around the table. There were sort of nine people, and there were, I think, several former students who would taken geography at Man, particularly urban geography. Uh, we have uh, so planning is a big area. Uh, I go often to the Department of Agriculture for other things I need, and I always turn up a geographer there doing some administrative work, uh, a physical geographer working on land use, soil issues. So because geography ranges over both physical and cultural, people can slot into a lot of government work uh, <clears throat> and a lot of planning work. Um, and a lot of heritage work. So there's lots lots there to choose from. Mm-hmm. Um,
0: well, I'd just like to say thank you. Thank you very much for coming on the show. It was uh, great to have you here. I'm Tara Barrett, and you've been listening to Living Heritage, a production of CHMR in collaboration with the Intangible Cultural Heritage Office at the Heritage Foundation of Newfoundland and Labrador. Find us online at ichblog.ca or on iTunes. Thanks for listening.